The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details. Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the mystery of John the Baptist. John the Baptist holds a very important place in the secret fraternities within the secret society groups, the occult brotherhoods, whatever you want to call them, the mystery school teachings brought forward to today. There's a special reverence given to John the Baptist. And likewise, John the Evangelist as well. So the two Johns from the Bible, these are treated with a whole lot of respect by the esotericists in the occult fraternities. And there's a reason why the two of them are held to such a high standard. And we're going to explore that avenue of thought tonight. And actually... Would you believe that perhaps the two of them are one and the same? Well, that's the line of thinking of some within the secret fraternities. So John the Evangelist and John the Baptist are interchangeable. Now we know John the Evangelist. He was one of Jesus' disciples in the Bible. And he was called the Beloved Disciple. And he's the one who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he penned the book of Revelation, or at least that's how the story goes, that's who the attribution goes to. And he's also the one who is credited with writing the book of John in the New Testament, one of the apostles, the four apostolic books, written in the New Testament, the first four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John giving the more spiritual context to the events of Jesus's life, death, crucifixion, and resurrection. So this is who's largely credited with writing the book of John, John the Evangelist or John the Disciple. But in the secret schools, they think that the title of the book of John can be attributed 
to John the Baptist. And that perhaps that's how that book got its title. Not so much who the authorship is, but what it's referencing. Because we'll see there's some heavy-duty esoteric connections and ties between John the Baptist and John the Evangelist. And we're going to start the reading here. So John and John. The long tradition that John's gospel was named, rather confusingly, after the beloved disciple who wrote these things, as recorded in 21-24, verse 21-24, and who was then tautologically identified as John, disciple of Jesus, from the gospel's existing title, and supposed to be John the Apostle or Evangelist. One might conclude that the gospel was originally named after John the Baptist. Yes, John the Baptist. That is not to say that the Baptist actually wrote it, of course, but that its contents are bound up with the figure and alleged testimony of John in a powerful, determinative, and mysterious way. If this sounds a trifle eccentric at first hearing, take a look at the following remarkable feat of verbal acrobatics from chapter 1, verses 29 to 34 of the book of John, the Gospel of John. Quote, the next day John, seeing Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, and bear record, that this is the Son of God. End quote. The whole story is presented as coming from the Baptist who saw and bore record, that is, who testified in his own words what happened at the baptism. And it says again, it repeats it, and I saw, in quotes. In a complete contradiction to the synoptic gospels, John says it was he who saw the Spirit descending. And he goes on to quote it here again. He says, and John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending like a dove, and it abode upon him. And that was in verse 32. This alone would seem to me to explain how this maverick gospel, beloved of mystics, a veritable halfway house to Gnosticism, as Rudolf Boltzmann's study of John called it, came to acquire the title of the Gospel of John. It is there staring you in the face if you care to see it. John is doing the testifying. John is bearing the record, at least to start with. Common sense suggests that someone read that direct testimony from John in the first chapter and titled the work The Gospel According to John. Unless it was so titled from its beginning, John is announcing the good news. This is the herald's role, the kirux of the divine ceremony. On this reckoning, John the Baptist is John the Evangelist. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So John the Baptist and John the Evangelist... One in the same, one in the same in the esoteric tradition. You could interchange these two in their stories, in their esoteric or mystic stories that they tell within the, the various facets 
of symbolism, both of these Johns can be construed as being one and the same, the symbol that represents them, I should say, to make it perfectly clear. So when they're talking about John the Evangelist and or John the Baptist, they're referring to the same symbolic person. It's the same representation in the Mystery School stories and teachings. So keep that in mind as we move forward. The author here continues on and says, And who is John testifying to? It seems to me that John is addressing an elect body in an eternal setting. The text is then delivered, as it were, to the seekers below us. The seekers below us. So I'm going to pause for a moment. So the author suggests that John is in the spirit, speaking these things that he witnessed to some elect body in an eternal setting, some spiritual authority in an eternal setting. And this text is then delivered to the seekers below, and that would be us. That would be the human beings here below. So that's what the author is stating there, to try to clear up any confusion there. Let's continue on. The gospel is the truth in which we are called to dip, the mixing bowl in which we may be spiritually baptized. A Neoplatonist philosopher would undoubtedly recognize John's role here as one incarnating the divine Hermes, the psychopomp leading the soul upward through the waters to a higher life, or if the Neoplatonist were Hebraic in outlook, across the waters to the other side and on towards the promised land, a new Moses preparing the way for the new Joshua Jesus. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we see here, the author of this work connects it to Neoplatonist thought and equates the role of John the Baptist and or John the Evangelist here to that of the divine Hermes, the bridge between man and the gods, the connection, the gap, bridging the gap between man and God. That's what it's referred to here. That's how they look at it in some of these old esoteric mysteries. Hermes was the connection between the divine and the, the human being. Well, let's continue reading here. The gospel of John's treatment of the baptism story is extraordinarily peculiar. Yes, we see some of the familiar lines about John's unworthiness to undo the shoe latchet of one coming after him, but the whole essence is different. It is deep. There is bizarre wordplay. The real message is for those who can see behind the apparent sense. Let's just take the verses above. And he goes on to quote the verses, quote, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, end quote. Note the play on after me cometh, followed by for he was before me. This seems a flat contradiction, but in a Gnostic riddle, sorry, but it is a Gnostic riddle. How can he who comes after be he who was before? And the author here says the answer is in verse 26, quote, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not, end quote. There is one who stands. This almost suggests a giant. This being stands when all else falls. This being has always stood. 
You did not see him. This being is the one whom ye know not. Verse 31 then informs us that John also, he knew him not. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I come baptizing with water. End quote. John's job is to make the one whom we, and he, knew not, manifest to Israel. And he does this by baptizing with water. Without John, the being is not made manifest. Without John, we cannot know. John knows. In verse 33, John repeats that line for emphasis. It is crucial. Quote, And I knew him not, he does now, it says in parentheses, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he who baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. End quote. And that is from John chapter 1, verses 33 to 34. So we see here that the author, <coughs> excuse me, is referring here to John the Baptist as being essential to the manifestation of Jesus Christ here on earth. That without John the Baptist going about baptizing, he would not manifest. Christ would not manifest in this place. So this is an important thing. So this is why they give such high regard to John in the occult teachings. Because without John, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ here, John the Baptist, and like I said, they will interchange John the Baptist and John the Evangelist in their symbology, in their symbolic use. They think it's one and the same symbolic representation here between the two. I don't know if they accept within the mystery school teachings of some of these occult fraternities and what this guy is suggesting here, if they truly believe that John the Evangelist and or John the Baptist were actual real people, or if it's a representation, some type of a uh, an amalgamation of what's become a character of sorts. I can't speak to that for, you know, the, what they believe as far as this goes, but they do like to interchange the two of them in symbolic representation here. So that's how it gets a little confusing when you're trying to decipher some of their texts. And they, they go back to this notion that in the book of John, the Gospel of John, it begins by talking about things witnessed and done by John the Baptist as part of the story here. And they make the argument that perhaps the book itself was named after this, or named because of this, because it spoke about John the Baptist in the beginning here. And that's how it came to be known as the Gospel of John, or the Gospel according to John. That it wasn't actually necessarily named after John the Evangelist, or that John the Evangelist was the writer thereof. So, it gets a little bit convoluted in the way that they think here, but uh, at the same token, you can understand the argument being made, and you can see how the symbolic representations are there. And they do put John the Baptist on this high type of a pedestal within the secret fraternities, because they see him as the forerunner of the Christ, and they'll call him the Christ, and they'll refer to him as the Christ. And they don't believe literally what the Christian faith teaches about Jesus Christ. They believe the Christ is a spiritual manifestation of sorts that operates in the form of something similar to a, an ascended master 
taking control of a human body for a period of time. And then when the work is done, he departs again into the spiritual and leaves the original man here behind. And this is what they believe is the case with Jesus Christ. They believe Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was indwelt at this time after the baptism with John at the River Jordan and his public announcement of who he was and the Spirit descended upon him. This is when they say the Christ entered into his body, the Christ Spirit or the Christ Force, as they like to call it. And then the Spirit of the man Jesus returned after the Christ did his work, and that was what happened after the uh, resurrection according to some of the secret teachings here of these secret schools, that the Christ spirit then left and went back to be in the etheric. And the man, Jesus, his spirit returned, and then he lived out the rest of his days doing whatever it is that he did, and some of them claim that he had children with Mary Magdalene. And there's all of this speculation by many in these secret schools without anything to really truly back it up. But these are some of the claims made by them with no actual evidence to support that. But this is what they believe and what they teach. So keep that in mind. So the whole notion here, I don't want to get too off topic. The whole notion here is they see John as having a hugely important role in spiritual things in the esoteric. He had a massive role to play in the advent of the Christ here on earth. So let's continue on reading. John has received a message from who he calls he who sent me. This Greek phrase is used with great emphasis by Jesus later on in the gospel. He who sent me, he who sent me is the father. The Father sent John. John saw and bear record. What did John see? John saw the Logos. The Logos is translated as the Word, but English does not do the Greek justice. The Logos was understood by Greek philosophy as the intelligence or the mind by whose order the universe was created. That is why he was before John, he had always existed. For anyone saying John came first, Jesus copied him, John's gospel says no. John himself testifies that he did not really know the one who was before him, who yet came after. This figure is a cosmic, eternal principle, ever-present but unseen, now manifesting in flesh. Those seeking understanding of the universe need to find the logos inherent in the creation design. Just as a Taoist seeks the Tao, or as an ancient Egyptian sought Mayat, goddess of justice and balance. The Hindu equivalent of the Greek word logos is the Sanskrit vok, or divine sound, the manifestation of the soundless. When the primordial conditions or primal conditions emerged in the ultimate soundless God for the creation of the universe, a divine sound became manifest. Thus, in the beginning was the Word. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the Logos. So John, John the Baptist, 
allegedly bear witness to seeing the Logos in the flesh, the Word made flesh. And this is, this is actually spoken pretty plainly in the biblical book of John here. The Word became flesh. The Word walked among us, the Logos. And there are various words and phrases in the older languages, especially in the Greek, that may translate as the Word. But Logos has a very special meaning that we can't really put into proper nuance in the English language. So we use the Word. The Word was made flesh, and the Word dwelt with us. And the world did not know the Word until the Word became manifest after the baptism. After John went around baptizing and then recognized the descending of the Holy Spirit upon this man, the Logos, the living word, recognized that, and then this set out the ministry of Jesus. So this is what they're talking about here. So we see the argument being made here that this does derive directly around John the Baptist, and that's what this uh, book of John, the Gospel of John, was named after. I don't know if that's true. doesn't matter if it's true or not. What does matter is this is what they teach within some of the highest, most rankings of these secret society groups. So this is what they believe and what they act upon. And the things they do to act upon their beliefs will affect all of us. So it's important to understand where they come from and what exactly they believe. But let's continue on because we're going to get a little bit further into this. And you'll begin to see how all the new agey sounding ties come together with a lot of this stuff and how a lot of it's been grossly misconstrued and used to mislead people. Let's read on. In the deepest sense, the universe is sound or vibration, and making union with that sound is the basis and goal of mantra yoga, where the Sanskrit man means thought and tra, liberation. So man, tra. The Sanskrit man means thought, and tra means liberation. So thought, liberation, that's what mantra means. So mantra yoga, thought, liberation. So that's what the old Eastern terms are. And you'll notice a lot of these, a lot of these people who belong to these secret society groups, they will try to tie the Eastern culture and traditions to the Western teachings. Doesn't always jive, but they always make the attempt because there are some constituent truths that underlie both the Eastern and Western esoteric systems. But they will go ahead and try to force the connection sometimes. And this is one of those ways in which they've done so. So they'll take the Eastern idea, tie it to the Western idea, and then it gets grossly misconstrued and mistaught out there by people. And we get what we get today. We get new agey nonsense out of a lot of it. So... This is where the idea of yoga as being something, I don't know, uh, mystical in some way, shape, or form. But uh, let's continue on. So he says here that uh, the sound is the basis and goal of mantra yoga, thus the truth will make you free. The carnally inaudible or unseen vok or logos may reveal the existence of the soundless, invisible source of creation. In pictorial terms, the primal God's utterance contains the divine formative intelligence 
the word is created or is creative and in creation the word was with us from the beginning gonna pause for a moment here folks so the logos the word it's creative and in creation the divine formative intelligence the word so that's what it's referring to here uh, if you want if you want to get all modern with your way of thinking here and you want to try to maybe associate it with some more modern type of mythology you could call it the force if you would like so this is the idea they're equating here with the word or the logos or with exactly who and what jesus christ is and was the force and they they always relate it back to the force did you think george lucas came up with that on his own did you really no this is something that's taught within the mystery schools for the longest of times the force so the logos the word the force let's continue on though at the time John was baptizing, a Jewish philosopher living in Alexandria called Philo identified the Greek logos with the Hebrew chokmah, or divine wisdom. The divine wisdom was philosophically identified as God's co-creator or son. And then it says here in parentheses, not to be taken literally. So remember that. This is what these secret society groups claim here. They say don't take that literally. Jesus Christ wasn't really God's son. Don't take it literally. That's what they tell you. Now, I don't think they're correct about that. But uh, this, is what they, this is their claim. This is where they claim that that idea comes from. It's by this philosopher named Philo, where he equated the Greek word logos with the Hebrew word chokmah, which means divine wisdom. So philosophically... These two things were tied together, Logos and Hokma, two slightly differing ideas. One is said to be the progenitor of the other, so uh, Logos would be God, and then the, God's co-creator, the Hokma, would be the Son. So they say don't take it literally, but let's continue reading here. So I'm going to read that again. The divine wisdom was philosophically identified as God's co-creator or son, a part of himself, the means by which intelligibility was infused into primal chaos, and the means by which that intelligibility and meaning could be discerned by the children of wisdom. While the Logos could be seen as a manifestation of God's profound nature, men, by and large, could not see it. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So men could not see the Logos, the Word, the operation of God. It was only the children of wisdom who would later see this. And who are the children of wisdom? Well, they're the ones that constitute the secret priestcraft, right? The, the secret society groups. They're the only ones smart enough and spiritually evolved enough to really see these things and understand these things. Not like you backwards profane people out there. They understood because, see, they were so learned. They knew all about Greek philosophy and they learned about the Jewish Kabbalah and all of these different ideas that they tied together and were able to identify in different ways with these things. 
So, although the Logos could be seen as a manifestation of God's profound nature, men, by and large, could not see it. That's what the claim is here. But let's continue on. The Word of God should not be, as it is so often confused, with the words of God or written scriptures, however exalted or profound they may be. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, the Word... The word of God and the words spoken by God or written down of God are two different things. And I think there is a core truth to that. When they're defining the word of God, that identifies this logos idea, which has more connotation to it than just your standard description of what word means. So understand it's a personification of the manifest intelligence of God, you see. And just to go back to the previous paragraph, they talk about how this combination of the Logos and the Chokmah, the, the Jewish tradition here, would be God and God's co-creator, the Son, a part of himself, they call it, and the means by which intelligibility was infused into what they call primal chaos here. Because, see, this is another core constituent of what they teach in these mystery schools. They teach that the universe itself was extant before our physical manifestation here. That it existed as chaos. It's always been existent. It's always been here. And that it's only through the action and the advent of what they call the great architect of the universe that form was created and things began to manifest here, and order was made out of the chaos. So now they're identifying this and crossing, referencing it to the action between the Logos and the Chokmah, or the Father and the Son, and they're identifying the Son with the great architect of the universe, which if you study any of the teachings within the mystery schools and within these secret fraternities, they call that Lucifer. So they're saying Lucifer and Jesus Christ are one and the same. Or, at the very least, they're equating them as two sides of one being. They claim they're one and the same, or there's some traditions that teach that they are brothers. That they're brothers, that they have this antagonistic relationship that Lucifer is a co-equal with Jesus. And this is the antithesis of what we're taught in the Bible. Lucifer is a created being, not equivalent or equal to God, the Father or the Son, or the Holy Spirit for that matter, not equivalent with the Trinity. But see, the secret teachings try to hold Lucifer as a co-equal with the Creator, and that's not the case. So this is where a lot of confusion sets in for some folks. And this is where in, in the secret society groups, they get the notion that they can also be co-equal with God. That they can be gods themselves. And there's many different mythological representations that, that this crosses, that this whole thought form crosses through. A lot of mythological stories that make these same claims or give people these same impressions. That's the whole point here, but uh, 
I don't want to get too sidetracked with things. I thought I would point that out. So let's continue reading, though. So we left off where it says, while the Logos could be seen as a manifestation of God's profound nature, men, by and large, could not see it. The Word of God should not be, as it so often is, confused with the words of God or written scriptures, however exalted or profound they may be. The voice or presence of the Spirit, the divine breath itself, is far more important than letters and words. Far beyond mere words exists the divine vibration. That is what must be experienced and known for true spiritual liberation to take place. This spiritual tradition was almost entirely obliterated in the bibliolatry of the Western Reformation, which divorced the words from the word and music, the divine sound to which the carnal world is deaf and blind. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So here we see, once again, an inherent bias that comes across in Freemasonry as well as other of these occult fraternities. They're saying the Western Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, divorced the word from the actual words of God, so divided the spirit from the, the text teaching about it. And the music, the divine sound, you know, the, that vibration idea. And, and I do think there's an air of truth to the idea of sound or vibration being something hugely important to manifestation here in this world. But the way that the New Age movement has taken this idea and run with it, they've turned it into something really rather ridiculous, haven't they? And I think that's on purpose. I think that's been promulgated on purpose to get people's minds off of the topic, to not take it seriously. The idea of sound or the voice, and it says here the voice with a capital V when we read that here, or the presence of the Spirit, Spirit with a capital S, of course, referencing the Holy Spirit. This whole thing, it's the divine breath itself. It's this, this divine spark we have. It's the breath of life breathed into us through spirit, through this vibratory process. And you can look at it as that. And they have made it sound rather silly with all the New Age hokum that they, they push with the idea of it's all frequency and vibration. Although it is a correct thing to say, to a certain degree, it's been taken so far out of context by these occultists and by these New Age weirdos that it beca it's become almost meaningless when people begin to speak of frequency and vibration and this kind of stuff. Speaking of the music of the spheres, or the voice, the word, the logos, the spoken word. You see, there's, there's a major difference between the spoken word and the written word. There's some subtle nuances there, and both are co-equally important, in my view. You need the written word, but you also need the spoken word. And everything began as the spoken word, as evidenced here in the Bible and by the studies of these secret society groups. They, they understand there's an essence of truth to it. Now, what, what do they teach here? Well, that's what we're getting into. Are they correct? That's the other thing. I think that there are certain elements of truth to some of the things they teach. I don't think they have it 100% right, though. I don't think anybody truly does. We don't truly understand how God works. 
we have a finite, limited mind for understanding that. We're only mere mortals, folks. We're only mere men and women. We can't understand God's thought forms the way God thinks. Because the Bible does tell us that the foolish things of God are greater than the wisdom of men. So when we see things and we think them foolish, and God's working through them, it's humbling, isn't it? Because if man cannot figure out how, it, how is this happening, how has this been done, this is the nature of miracles. When miracles are seen, performed, when they happen in front of people, all of the most educated and well-meaning people out there become dumbstruck. They become dumbstruck because they begin to realize how little they truly know about this world in which we live. These ones who think they know everything about everything, especially if it's something pertaining to their particular specialty. If they see the miraculous happen and they can't explain it, well, that leaves them a little bit gobsmacked, doesn't it? They don't know what to make of that. And this would, what, would be what we would refer to as the foolish things of God and how they're greater than the wisdom of men. So even though it may look foolish on the face of it, something miraculous happens and it shuts people's mouths instantly because they can't explain it. And oftentimes they'll turn a blind eye to it and deny that this very thing happened. Miracles still happen today, folks. They still happen today. It's not something that just happened in the times of the writings of the gospel. It's not all allegorical stories, as they like to tell you in these mystery schools and secret society groups. It's not all a mythological story. It's not all allegory. Although they'll tell you that, and then in the same breath they'll tell you that only they know the true secrets, and if you follow them, then you could attain these mystical, magical, mysterious, miraculous powers that only they could perform. But all that stuff in the Bible, that's all just allegory. Do you understand the contradiction that they teach? And they do this on purpose. They do this on purpose. But miracles do happen. And the foolish things of God do make the wisdom of man look rather silly. Makes man humbled. And that's the whole point here. It humbles man. But uh, as we see here, a lot of this stuff has really been taken out of context here and gone completely the other way by a lot of the new agey weirdos out there who claim to know a little bit of something. But uh, honestly, they, they sound... Well, you know how they sound. Love and light. <laughs> everything's frequency and vibration. Well, they're not wrong in saying everything's frequency and vibration, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think they 100% they get it. But at any rate, let's continue on here. Because there's a lot more to cover here that's important. So, we see here, I, I just pointed out the uh, inherent bias of the writer here, leaning towards the Masonic-type teaching here where he claims that the Western Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, actually dealt a great deal of harm to people being in touch with the Word, the manifest being, the manifest Spirit of God. 
disattached from that and focused more on the words on the page of the written book. Not totally wrong. A lot of people have become focused on that. But also not completely right either, and I think that was going on long before the Protestant Reformation took place, in my honest view. But that's another story for another day. Let's go ahead and continue reading. So, the hymn which opens the Gospel of John famously leaps to a tremendous affirmation. Quote, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. End quote. And that was John 1, 14. That is to say, the divine Word became temporarily audible enfleshed to those who had ears for it. This Logos is the one that the people among whom he was standing knew not. The Logos was there, but not manifest. The Logos went unseen. And the answer to this riddle becomes plainer still. The Logos was indeed, as John the Baptist declares, before me. The Gospel's prologue makes it plain that the Logos was pre-existent. It was both with God as being an aspect of God, and it was God, since God is not divided but manifest according to the perceiver's capacity. To make the situation plainer still, the hymn or prologue begins with a direct echo of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John begins, In the beginning was the Word. There was no heaven and earth without the Word, the Logos, and the Logos appears as a man going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we see here, once again, I don't think they're totally incorrect on some of this. In fact, I think there's a lot of merit to some of what's said here, that God is not divided, but he does manifest according to the perceiver's capacity. According to their, their capacity to perceive it, God's presence. Not everybody perceives God's presence the same way. You don't always know he's there. But rest assured, he's there. You don't always sense his presence, but he is ever-present. And that's the whole point here. So understanding that, we could understand a few more things. Let's continue with the reading here, though. We need to look closely as the, at the famous prologue to John's Gospel. For John the Baptist is revealed in its words to be second only in significance to the Logos. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this is where it becomes a hugely important aspect to the occult principles here that are taught within these secret society groups. They say here, John the Baptist is revealed in this gospel of John's words to be second only in significance to the Logos or second only in significance to Jesus Christ himself. Let's continue. John occupies a very important place in the divine scheme. It is extraordinary that this inference has so rarely been grasped. So full have commentators been with the idea that John was, according to John, secondary. They have been blinded to the import of what he was secondary to. If John's prologue is a hymn to the Logos, the Son of God, it is also a hymn to John. And let's read that again, because he has it listed here again. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. 
and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. End quote. And that was from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. So we see here, there's an important idea here. They're claiming now within the secret schools that this bears witness to the importance of John here too, John the Baptist, being secondary only to Jesus Christ himself. Let's read on though. There is, of course, an entire religion in these words. It is generally held by scholars that the references to John vis-a-vis he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, were a deliberate attempt to scotch residual beliefs among John's followers that he, John, was the Messiah. If so, those beliefs must have been very strong indeed. If we accept a date of circa 90 to 130 common era for this gospel, those beliefs must have been remarkably persistent. According to... According to this view, John was being taken by followers to be the light, the one who revealed the essence of salvation long, long after his death. John's gospel then trumps this view with nothing less than the testimony of John the Baptist himself. This explains with satisfying economy why the fourth gospel takes the name of John, John the Baptist. John was the true evangelist. John himself elucidates why the Son of God must take primacy over him. It is because the Logos came before him. The Son is a power, the wisdom behind the universe, the only one who can ultimately create and save, the only one with the right and means to destroy. However, John's Gospel does not deny that John was sent by God to make the Son manifest to Israel. John begins as the center of religious interest. Priests and Levites leave Jerusalem to go to John. His testimony opens the gospel on completion of the prologue. He is temporary narrator and subject, and we're going to quote from it now. Quote, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness... Have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then art thou, Elias, which is Greek for Elijah? And he saith, I am not. 
Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give answer to them who sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him, and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. And that's the end of the quote there from the Bible. The neutral voice of the narrator now reappears, but John is soon back with his Behold the Lamb of God speech, and the ensuing drama flows from John. After the baptism, two of John's disciples, one named as Andrew, brother of Simon Peter, leave John. They follow the one the Baptist has called a second time the Lamb of God. Andrew's brother then joins them, having been informed that his brother and the unnamed disciple of John have found the Messiah. Jesus gets his operation going. John showed them the way. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So do you see the importance in the accounts of John the Baptist? Now, like I said, the claim here being made through the secret society groups is that John, the Gospel of John in the book of the Bible, is named for John the Baptist and that John the Baptist was the true evangelist of whom it was spoken. And they place this emphasis on the importance of John the Baptist as being the forebearer of the Christ. So with that being said, we can see some of the connotations made here. We can understand how they've come to really elevate this figure, this symbol, within their teachings. And there's been entire secret society groups formed around the ideas of John. And we see how a lot of this stuff can be misconstrued. But there's a lot of core truths present in some of these teachings. And that's why it's important to touch on this stuff. So let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. How much historical fact might lie behind this extraordinary cross-pollinating narrative is anybody's guess. It does not read like history, and it is not meant to be history. It is really meta-history. The essence of the events takes place on another plane, a higher plane. Such may be hinted at in the otherwise prosaic-looking statement of the Gospel writer that, quote, These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing, end quote, and that's in chapter 1, verse 28. Beth is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word for house, and Abara is the Hebrew word for ford or crossing place. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Or crossroads. So, Bethabara could be translated literally as House of the Crossroads, and we know the importance of the crossroads in the old science of alchemy. If you've been following this program for any length of time, 
We've discussed some things about the crossroads idea before. And we see it's here now being presented within the secret society groups uh, pertaining to the mystery of John, the book of John, John the Evangelist and John the Baptist and how these things are all tied together in the esoteric stream of information. So let's continue on. So it says, well, on the one hand, we may be talking of a convenient spot on a tributary east of the Jordan. The ford and the house suggest the presence of a ferry. Symbolically, the ferryman may then be seen as John Hermes. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. The ferryman. Have you seen the ferryman? Sharon, the, the spirit of death that helps people cross the river in the little boat in a lot of the mythology. Same kind of designation being made here, but they're equating John to John Hermes, and they also relate this figure to Hermes. So let's go ahead and we'll, we'll follow the symbolism here. So he says here, symbolically, the ferryman may then be seen as John Hermes. Hermes, remember, was seen in Hellenistic tradition as a psychopomp, literally a guide of souls through the darkness of death to the other side, the herald of another world attainable only through death. Johannan means God comforts. Hermes bridges boundaries from the divine to the human. In Jungian terms, from the unconscious to the conscious and back again. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So there's a hugely important idea bound up in this, and it was just explained here pretty well. So the idea of Hermes, remember the idea of Hermes. Hermes... In Jungian terms, taken from Carl Jung, who describes these things in the old alchemical language, but he translated the old alchemical language into what we would revere as modern psychology these days. So he teaches that Hermes is the bridge between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. So remember that, Hermes is the bridge between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And this is a hugely important idea, especially as it pertains to controlling the minds of the masses or influencing the behavior of the masses. Why do you think they use Hermes? Or if you're not familiar enough with Hermes, Hermes is also, in some of the other mythologies, equated one-to-one -to, -one to the idea of Mercury. So we have the mercurial ideas. This is the bridge between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. The subconscious, if you will. And how do they get things done a lot of times with people? By influencing the subconscious mind to bring about conscious action. Well, this subconscious mind, this is the bridge between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. This is the Hermes principle, the mercurial principle. The bridge. This very thing where the information is sent to flow back and forth. So they can implant an idea in your unconscious mind through subconscious suggestion. And then it will take up residence in the unconscious mind, and through this bridge that is Hermes, or the mercurial idea, it can cross into the conscious mind at some point and become manifest. This is an important concept here, just touched upon in this little work about St. John, about John the Baptist. And this is something that has been known to many of these secret society groups for a long time,
they know about that. They know that in order to affect somebody, first you have to subconsciously implant some idea or narrative so that it takes residence in their unconscious mind first. And then at some point, you can use the mercurial ideas to bridge the gap and bring it into full conscious realization. So this is one of the coded types of ideas that's inherent in some of these secret teachings that they have. But I don't want to get too hung up on that side point here. But uh, I figured that was an important thing to cover. So let's go ahead and continue on. So it says here, Greeks would make a sacrifice to Hermes before going on a journey. Think again of Leonardo's John with his upwardly pointing finger. May we not also see this as a beckoning finger indicating the words this way? And is not this the way across the ford through the darkness from which John emerges? There is, of course, a well-known link between the passage of symbolic death, rebirth, and baptism. The baptismal events in John's Gospel illustrate spiritual insights of great depth. One is reminded of Brecht's dictum that realism does not consist in reproducing reality, but in showing how things really are. Dramatic truth transcends journalism. Even so, it has long been recognized that the fourth gospel does contain unusual pieces of authentic period background unrecorded in the synoptic or the broadly similar gospels. We meet new characters such as Nicodemus, new events such as the wedding at Cana, new miracles such as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In fact, we get a new perspective altogether, so new, in fact, that John was not accepted by all churches as authoritative scripture for some time. What is more, John flatly contradicts the assumptions and plain statements of both Matthew and Luke that the Baptist was a prophet, that he was Elijah, the prophesied messenger, returned. When in Matthew 11, John hears, even though in prison, what Jesus has been doing, he dispatches two disciples to ask, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? This sounds credible, possibly even historical. John's John, of course, would hardly need to inquire. He has seen the Logos in the flesh. However, it is not entirely clear whether the imprisoned Baptist is asking whether Jesus is the messenger, that is, Elijah, or whether he is the one for whom Elijah must take straight the path. In trying to explain matters to his disciples, Jesus emphasized, It is John who, quote, is Elias which has for to come, end quote. If that is, they will receive it, meaning, if the disciples can understand the teaching and deal with the statement's import, According to this account, John was Elias returned, but perhaps did not realize it himself. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this is something that was... It's a well-known thing for anybody who studied theological matters for any length of time. In a lot of the Jewish traditions, they're waiting for the return of Elijah, the prophet. And this will be the precursor, this will be the one that announces the advent or the return of Messiah. Well, according to the interpretation given by the Christian theologist here, John the Baptist was this, this same type spirit of Elijah returned to be the forebearer, the herald of the Messiah. 
and Jesus came afterwards, and we know the rest, right? We know the rest of the story. So this is something that equates back to the, the Jewish religious faith as well. And these things are forever intrinsically related. But let's continue with the reading here. One might have thought that it was clear by now to Matthew and Luke that John was the messenger, but Luke's account of the visit was John's disciples to Jesus to find out who he is leaves the question hanging in the air. Luke prefaces his treatment of John's disciples' visit with a stupendous miracle. Coming to a city called Nain, southwest of the Sea of Galilee, near the Judea-Galilee border, Jesus is called to a widow's grief. The widow's son, a young man, has died. Jesus raises the widow's son from the, the dead. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So herein is where a lot of Freemasonry latches onto a huge amount of ideas and symbolism here because they are known as the widow's sons. The widow... They use this terminology all the time to describe themselves, to identify themselves, the widow's son. And of course, they're going to go ahead and make this connection here. Of course, they are. So it says here, Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead. The significance here is that the story is an almost precise repeat of Elijah's raising of the widow's son from the dead in 1 Kings 17.17. 17. In Luke's account, this parallel is not at all lost on the people who observe it. The implication is clear. They take the miracle as a sure sign that Elijah has returned. The miracle man in Nain must be the great prophet. The time of the Messiah has come. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So, also, the Freemasons like to equate this idea to their mythical figure, Hiram Abiff. So they give Hiram Abiff this same type of relevance as they do Jesus Christ and John the Baptist as well. And we see the connection made here because the widow's son, and this is a well-known story in the Bible, Elijah did take part in resurrecting the son of a widow, and Jesus did as well. And this is one of the reasons why that term and that idea has been adopted by Freemasonry and some of the other occult teachings that name that they give themselves, they often reference themselves as. But let's continue on. So it says, the time of the Messiah has come. And then it quotes here and it says, quote, And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God had visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him the, of these, all these things. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were to come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in the same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus, answering, said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. 
end quote. And that comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 16 through 23. So Luke's account leaves John's disciples in no doubt. They need look no further for the one who is to come. Jesus has ticked all the expected boxes of what the Messiah should do, including the raising of the dead. John's disciples having left, Luke has Jesus say that John is much more than a prophet, though he does not say why. Unlike Matthew, he does not, for some reason, say directly that John is Elijah either. He seems to hold something of that dignity in some sense to himself. Instead, he alludes to the messenger prophecy of Malachi, quote, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee, end quote. Without Malachi's conclusion, that, that is, th that the messenger was Elijah, Luke cannot bring himself to repeat Matthew's words about Elijah because of what he next takes from Matthew, and it says here, quote, for I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Luke's slap-in-the-face caveat might not have been thought appropriate for Elijah, but it was apparently appropriate for John. One cannot help thinking in reaction that we are in the Pauline territory of distinguishing between the alleged two baptisms of water and of the Holy Ghost, with John being given a theological kiss-off. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see the writers of the various Gospels, they often gave different perspectives to a lot of the things that have happened here. And perhaps some of them understood that John the Baptist was this reemergence of Elijah. Now, maybe not literally the same personage as Elijah, but had the same spirit as the herald of the coming Messiah, you see. And they may have given different types of descriptors to that or referenced it in a different way from one another. Different perspectives. That's what this is about. So we have these four various perspectives given on this account. And they focus mostly on the one of the, the Gospel of John. And they compare and contrast here. So we see here that the figure of John the Baptist is very prominent in these stories. And he is seen as the, the herald of the Messiah in this regard. And this is why he's also elevated so highly within these secret occult fraternities. And they, they kind of assert that he had some type of spiritual power or significance as well in the manifestation of these things. So let's, let's go ahead and continue on. There is no doubt that the switching here and there about John's real status is puzzling. It perhaps explains why the author of John's Gospel, as if having the last word, wipes aside all doubt and ambiguity. John was not the Christ. John was not Elijah. John was not a prophet. John was quoting a prophet, Isaiah. And it says, quote, I am the voice or sound crying or shouting aloud in the desert, end quote. John is the sound, the only sound, in the emptiness. 
we should perhaps look more closely at the magical poetry of John's quotation from Isaiah, taking the desert as a metaphor, that is, as an image for a bare, empty, hard, lifeless, perhaps even spiritless place, we may not see John as the cry, the embodied sound, the mantra emitted from within and beyond that world, the long pain of the world, longing, yearning for spiritual rain. Then John is the anguish of the world. Thus is he greater than a prophet, for no ordinary prophet could stand for so much. And yet the smallest one who has already entered the kingdom of God is greater than he who is crying outside of it, a voice in the wilderness. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now understand this distinction they've made. This is why they hold John the Baptist in such high reverence here. So John is a symbol to them that represents more than that of a prophet, more than that of a herald of the Messiah, more than the returned Elijah. You see, he represents all of this, this, the voice itself. Understand, he represents the voice itself, the sound, the initial sound, this beginning of manifestation here. That's what he represents. The unheard voice of manifestation, the very beginnings, the, the primal things. Prima materia. That's what John the Baptist represents to them. Because without John coming forth to light the way for the coming Messiah, the Messiah would not become manifest here. So it's John's voice crying in the wilderness that made this possible. So see, they see John as a symbol for prima materia, or the first state of things. Let's continue reading, though. And Mark, it is not as though John's message was unheard, as we usually think when we use the phrase about someone being a voice crying in the wilderness, as was employed of Winston Churchill, for example, when his warnings about Germany during the 1930s went largely unheeded, and which times in his life came to be called the wilderness years, John was heard, even by them that did not see in the wilderness. John's gospel is unique among canonical gospels for showing a most unexpected scenario. John and Jesus are shown as both baptizing, possibly even in the same place, apparently at the same time. Again, there is no mention of Jesus' baptism being any different from John's. And it says here, quote, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon, near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison, end quote. And that's John chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Anon is only a couple of miles west of the Jordan, on the opposite bank to the brook Cherith, where Elijah is said to have sojourned during the Great Famine, described in 1 Kings chapter 17. Some twenty miles south of the Sea of Galilee, in what was the Decapolis. Whatever they were up to, the plain statement that Jesus baptized is contradicted at the beginning of the following chapter, quote, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, 
though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And that's quoted from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This all sounds peculiar, and the lacuna is not picked up in any way. The narrative runs on elsewhere. The explanation may be because the author has realized the theological implications of Jesus and John baptizing. If their baptisms were of the same nature as this little story suggests, then in what way could it be justified that John's baptism was allegedly deficient, as it is presented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? If we look carefully at John's account of Jesus' baptism, however, it is not there stated that one comes after John who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He does not seem to be very interested in the Pauline baptism distinction. He who sent him, John, having been sent by the Father, was sent to baptize with water. It was God's will. The Gospel writer's understanding of the Holy Spirit comes later. The Comforter will be sent in my name sometime in the future. And that's from John chapter 14, verse 26. So Jesus does not baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire, for the Holy Ghost has not yet been sent. Jesus baptizes with water, as do his disciples. They are doing the same as John. We seem to have something of a competition between John and Jesus in the baptism stakes. Jesus seems to be winning in terms of numbers anyway. Again, the authorities seem to be trying to work out which of the two is greater or perhaps more dangerous, Jesus or John, a competition that must look most unedifying to us today, but which is a significant concern for the Gospels writer. Indeed, John gives us a rather odd conversation about the matter in chapter 3, verses 25 to 36. The debate takes place originally between a group called the Jews, a habitual expression in the fourth gospel, and some of John's disciples, and it says in parentheses, were they not Jews too? Before abruptly switching to a debate between the Jews, or properly the Judeans, possibly in distinction to Galileans, and that's probably what the distinction truly is, folks, in there, and John himself. The subject is ostensibly an academic one about purifying a subject which we have examined in detail. The subtext of the debate involves the Jews or Judeans trying to put a wedge between John and Jesus. They sneer by implication that Jesus has taken John's baptism and is now attracting bigger crowds than John. John's answer is to say that he is a friend of Jesus. He applauds what is clearly God's work. Jesus is entitled to the prize. John's joy is fulfilled. Jesus' success is his success. John then gives a classic Johannine speech aimed straight at the questioners and their real nature, which the Baptist perceives. He says they are of the earth. They do not see or understand heavenly things. If they did... They would not ask such stupid questions. If they fail to see the Son, they will deny themselves eternal life. They will find the wrath of God abiding in them instead, for God is eternal life, and he is wrath. It depends on the will, as well as the capacity to receive truth. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bear, bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. 
John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that the bride, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And that's from John chapter 3, verses 25 to 36, as paraphrased earlier. So basically... John says to the people that question, Hey, this guy came along. He's baptizing people too. He's copying what you're doing and taking all the crowds. Well, John said, Hey, you know what? This is the work of God. This is the hand of God at play. And I rejoice in seeing this because this is something heavenly. And if you can't recognize that because you're too bound in earthly material world concerns, then you're missing the point. It's not a competition. So that was John's response to this. So let's continue on and we'll wrap it up here real soon. A few more points to cover. This is John's testimony according to John. And such is its power that I have myself little doubt in ascribing the title of the gospel to John the Baptist, a long overdue ascription. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the author here of this book, who seems to have Freemasonic inclinations, also ascribes the title of the gospel of the book of John in the Bible to John the Baptist rather than John the Evangelist, as is the traditional acceptance here of the writer of this book. And to say that it's attributed to John the Baptist, well, he, they've already made it abundantly clear. They don't think John the Baptist wrote this book, but they think that the title of the book was garnered because it focuses very heavily on John the Baptist. And thus it was named that, and then later attributed to John the Evangelist. And like I said, within the secret schools, these two have become synonymous. They've become a symbol, an interchangeable symbol, one with the other, representing other things, like the idea of Hermes, or the mercurial idea, the bridge, the gap between the divine and mankind, the link between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. See, when, when you learn to read the layers of symbolism here, you could break apart a lot of different meanings from this stuff. But uh, let's go ahead and we'll continue here. So the author makes the claim. He accepts that the biblical book of John is written about John the Baptist. And this is what one of the Freemasonic views is as well. 
what many of the secret society groups accept. So, understand, they see the book of John as referencing John the Baptist, and they see John the Baptist as a very special symbol within the esoteric teachings. Let's continue reading. As for its historicity, or of its value as telling us about the real John, well, it is hard to imagine that the author's idea of what was real about John was what would interest a historian. There can be little doubt that the author was convinced truth was being conveyed. Since John was a messenger of truth, he could hardly object. I do not think we are receiving verbatim reports of John's words or anything like them. They are too contrived for that. I have always been struck, however, by the line, quote, he must increase, but I must decrease, end quote. Apparently, taken in the above context for a kind of bowing out line, as John practically volunteers to leave the scene, this luminous Logian may have been lifted from a very different context. As it stands, of course, it is straight propaganda against anyone still under the sorry impression that John was to be preferred to Jesus. Again, John testifies to his own alleged deficiency. Whether he did or not, it is impossible on the basis of the evidence to tell for sure. I suspect he did not, though he may have had plans for Jesus, and there may have been some kind of key assignation of roles, as we shall examine in due course. <laughs> the saying, he must increase, but I must decrease, seems to me a straightforward piece of mystical advice on the lines of, quote, he who tries to save his life will lose it, he who loses his life for my sake will save it, end quote. The aphorism appears as an authentic insight of contemporary wisdom. If we swap the word ego for life, we get near the mark, I think. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks ego. So now we begin to see where there's this crossover between theology and these esoteric teachings of the secret schools and how it crosses over with psychological terminology as well. And where do you think psychology got the term from? Well, directly from esotericism, from occultism, ego. So now we see here, if you replace the word ego for life, you get to the core of what some of the hidden meaning is here. Well, it's about the the attainment of the higher self to these people in these secret schools. Ego. The swapping out of ego. You see. So let's read on. He, God, must increase, but I, ego, must decrease. The carnal mind is enmity against God, as St. Paul knew. The rational mind cannot reach the spiritual mind of its own will. The true will, of which we are unconscious, knows best. That is where the call comes from. God cannot be present when the I, or the I am, is raving, nor can we be in the divine presence. The true I, or I am, is in fact he, but men cannot see it. He stands among us, and we know him not. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. He is the still small voice that Elijah heard amid the earthquake, wind, and fire. He became, becomes flesh and dwells among us. So long as we live below, he will come from above. And John points the way. 
And that's the end of what we're going to read here tonight, folks. So John points the way. He's pointing upward, as above, so below. And also we see here how the secret schools perceive this ideal. It's all about the I, or I am, this ego. You need to swap ego, or the animalistic nature of the human being, the individualization, the individuation of the person for the divine will, which they call the true will. And of course, we've done some programs here about the will and how this is the primary focus of this secret religion of the elite, the will. So it's about the higher self. It's the attainment of the higher self. And that's what their claim is here. And I think they're totally off base with that. That's not the creator, folks. The higher self is not the creator, is not God. But they equate it to be so. And this is what they teach. So the true will, the I, the I am. So they're saying here to, to kind of bridge the gap here for about the things we were saying earlier, how we were talking about this Jungian principle where... The author of this book made it clear in plain language by quoting the Jungian principle here. You see, the higher self would be equivalent to the unconscious mind. And the ego, or the lower self, the animal self, the individualized nature in a person that needs to be overcome, according to these secret mystery schools, this equates to the conscious mind. And in order to get information back and forth and connect the two, you need the messenger, Hermes, Mercury, as we had discussed here earlier, that whole principle, the connection between the divine and the human being, the connection between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind, the hermetic principle, the mercurial idea, the mercurial component here that connects the two, the bridge, the subconscious mind, that is the bridge between the two. So you see the connotation being made here. So to get to that point where the higher self takes place, you have to thwart the conscious mind and delve completely into the unconscious mind where they say the higher self resides. And that is where... God resides in their estimation because they view the higher self as God. And I don't think it's a correct description or an apt description. But this is what they teach in these secret society groups. And they teach that because we contain this higher self, this unconscious mind or principle, that we can be God ourselves, that we are God. You see... And they've attached these ideas to modern psychology. They've attached these ideas not only to the esoteric and to the theological notions of things. They've attached them to all these different ways of thinking in philosophical form as well. So with that being the case here, we can understand a little something if you think in the Jungian terms with this. It's the connection. It's that tool. That subconscious mind is a tool 
that's used to bridge this gap between what they call the ego or the conscious mind and the divine higher mind, the higher self, as they, they like to refer to it, the unconscious mind. So they will manipulate this gap in between the subconscious mind because that's the direct route to having something manifest consciously for you. They'll make you think that they are your god or that you are your own god by attaching these ideas to the unconscious. What do you think the whole notion of meditation is in the New Agey circles? Oh, you got to blank out your mind. Well, that's to achieve this level of unconsciousness, which they equate to godhood. See? That's where all this stuff comes together. And we, we see this when we look at some of the things they teach. And sometimes it takes looking into the Bible and some of the misconstruing of verses in the Bible and ideas in the Bible to bring us to that point. And maybe there is something to this notion that John the Baptist is the John of the Gospel of St. John, written in the, the Bible. There are these definite stories and attachments there, but do you see how the esotericists take it to another level here? And that's what they always do. They ascribe some secret meaning to this, and they attach it to some other idea which can be manipulated and misconstrued, and which has been, in my estimation. So they, they put this level of importance on St. John, or John the Baptist, or both of them. They're an interchangeable symbol, one for the other. And the, like I said, they have whole secret society groups that are named after St. John, that equate some of these ideas to it. And it's all about control. It's about this, this principle, this mercurial idea, this effect between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. That's what it's about, you see. But uh, anyway, I hope this was interesting. I thought it was an interesting topic to cover tonight, and I always enjoy going through and seeing some of the hidden meaning and underlying meaning in some of the verses of the Bible as translated through these esoteric types of frameworks by the occultists here, their interpretations thereof. It's always interesting to know what it is they're thinking and how they perceive these things. Because in understanding the things that they, they do, what they believe, what their motivations are, then we can understand why they do the things they do. And I think that's important if we want to counter that, because let's face it, there's people in positions of power in this world that are doing things that don't benefit the rest of us, that we don't like, and we need to be aware of it. And the more we know about the things they believe, the more we understand why they do the things they do, and the better we can counter those. So it's important to study this stuff. But uh, anyway, that's it for tonight, folks. I hope this was informative and educational for you. I appreciate each and every one of you. Have a good night now. Come with me.